Good morning. My name is Russ Allen. I'm the student ministries pastor here at West Shore. It's always a privilege to be able to share God's word with you. As Cindy said earlier, we are going to be resuming our study in the book of Galatians. We took a little bit of a break during the Advent season, but I hope you're ready to jump right back in. Before we get into our text for today, though, I thought it would be helpful to give you a very brief reintroduction to Galatians. So if you remember, Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia, which is modern-day Asia Minor. Paul is concerned that the people who once received the good news of faith in Christ for salvation are being swayed by the Judaizers, false teachers who have infiltrated the church and taught that Jews and Gentiles all need to observe the Old Testament law in order to be made right with God. Among these rules included circumcision, ritual cleanliness, and the observance of special holy days. So Paul goes to great lengths to show that justification, being made right with God, has always and will always be through faith in Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 2, verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So this is the overarching, penetrating, life-changing message of Galatians. And so it's fitting that we resume our study by examining today's text. Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 21 and continuing through chapter 5, verse 1. Because it is in this text that Paul uses a powerful example to illustrate his overarching point for the book. Now, in this text, Paul gives three Old Testament references that we are going to also be looking at today. So what I've done is on the back of your notes, I've included our main text from Galatians, so that when we look at the other passages, you can have both of them in front of you. So let's first read Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 5, 1. says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. 
Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer last service and and this service is that you would use me as a magnifying glass so that our people might be able to see through me to see you and your word more clearly, Lord. Help me to magnify you, to clarify your word. We trust you, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of today's sermon is Children of Slavery or Children of Promise. And the main point, the thing that I most want you to remember when you leave here today is that Christ has set us free from slavery under the law. Christ has set us free from slavery under the law. And you can see that most explicitly from our text in chapter five, verse one. Now to many of us, the passage that we're studying today is a confusing one. What is Paul talking about here? And why does he make the references that he does? See, Paul knows his immediate audience. The struggle in Galatia, as I mentioned, is over the role of Jewish law in the life of a Christian. Many Jewish people, particularly these Judaizers, had the idea that someone was made right with God and received his blessing because they were a physical descendant of Abraham and because they obeyed the Old Testament law first given to Moses. And certainly there are many passages in the Old Testament about the Jewish nation being God's chosen people. But Paul is saying that they are getting things wrong. Although God chose to use the Jewish nation and people, being made right with God was never about physical descent or perfect obedience, but rather faith in God's word and God's works. And so, as he had done earlier in the letter, what better way for Paul to prove his point than to go back to the Old Testament and back to Abraham himself? This is what Paul means in verse 21 when he asks, ironically, if the Galatians really do listen to the law. Now, the law was essentially the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, If the Galatians truly understood the law, they would understand that salvation does not come 
through it. Now, before we can fully grasp Paul's point, we have to first comprehend the story that he's referencing. It comes from Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 21. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. So from the time that Galatians was written in about 40 AD, we're going to now track back several thousand years to the time of Abraham, when he was still called Abram, and his wife Sarah was still called Sarai. So God chose Abraham from all the people of the earth, not because there was anything special about him, but just because of grace. And God tells Abram that he is going to make him the father of a great group of people who would later become the Israelites, the Jewish nation. This ultimate blessing of a promised people and a promised land. This is nothing short of a return to the Garden of Eden. Now, if this isn't miraculous enough, we read that Abram and his wife Sarai are far too old to have children. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is righteousness, being made right with God and receiving his promised blessing through faith. Faith in God's word and God's works to make happen what he promised. But in the very next chapter, chapter 16, the story takes a turn. See, a lot of time evidently passed between God's promise to Abram and the fulfillment of that promise. And Abram and his wife Sarai start to lose faith and take matters into their own hands. Sarai convinces Abram that it would be good for him to sleep with her slave woman, Hagar that perhaps the son he has with her would be the fulfillment of God's promise. So in the same way that Adam listened to the sinful desire of Eve in the Garden of Eden, Abram listened to the sinful desire of Sarai, and he has a son with Hagar named Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the son of promise. He was a slave, like his mother. Now later, God does fulfill his promise by allowing Sarai to bear a son named Isaac. He is the son of promise. So that's the setup. That's the background. Now we're going to fast forward again to Galatians 4. Paul takes this Old Testament story and he brings out the deeper meaning and symbolism in it by explaining it as an allegory. Now, this takes a little bit of unpacking because I do not want us to be led astray by misapplications. Paul's use of the story as an allegory does not mean 
that the story isn't true. It is real history. He does not deny that. This also does not mean that any biblical text can be interpreted allegorically. Allegory is the right interpretive application for this text, given the context, which we'll examine in just a minute. Paul's interpretation is also not a commentary on interpersonal or civil morality. He neither condones nor condemns the character of Abram, Sarai, and Hagar. And he neither condones nor condemns the use of slavery during that historical time period. Those things lie outside of Paul's point and the main point of the story in Genesis. Instead, Paul sees the story as a historical object lesson for understanding the contrast between two things, righteousness through works and righteousness through faith, receiving the promised blessing through works and receiving the promised blessing through faith. Look at Galatians 4, verse 22. He says, there are two sons, one by a slave woman, you can circle slave, and one by a free woman, you can circle free. So with the rest of our time today, we're going to examine each of these ideas. Son of the slave woman, children of slavery, and son of a free woman, children of promise. And I think what we'll find is that the historical object lesson from ancient times not only applies to Paul's context in Galatia, but also to ours as well. Paul says in verse 23 that the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. You can underline that, according to the flesh. Paul's use of that phrase essentially means regarding the physical rather than the spiritual. It is Paul's way of telling the Judaizers in Galatia that just because you are one of Abraham's physical descendants, like Ishmael was, this does not mean that you are a child of the promise and will receive God's ultimate blessing. The spiritual identification, not the physical one, is what truly matters. This is why in verses 25 and 26, he makes the contrast between the physical Jerusalem and the Jerusalem above. That is the heavenly one, the spiritual one, the ultimate one. See, God promises us something far better than what we can achieve for ourselves. An ultimate Jerusalem, an ultimate blessing that can only be found in him. Ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate satisfaction, not in us or our actions at all, only through full reliance on him. When we try 
to insert ourselves into the process, we bring with us only our imperfect, sinful flesh. We are in need of divine intervention, just like Abram and Sarai were. It's interesting that when Paul uses the phrase according to the flesh in his other letters, it almost always refers to sinful passion. I think this is intentional because it is Paul's way of saying that sinful passion and salvation by works are really two sides of the same coin. They both are a rejection of faith in God, a rejection of full reliance on God. So, are you relying on your own physical actions to give you what only God can truly provide? Now, as I mentioned, this could be through our sinful passions. And I think of the woman at the well who went from one man to the next in search of the ultimate satisfaction, living water that God promises. But my guess is that for most of us, we look more like Martha, who was so concerned with physically working to earn Jesus' favor when what she really needed was to do nothing and instead sit at his feet. See, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. When we trust in our flesh, we are removing our trust from God and we become slaves. Verses 24 through 25. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. You can circle children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. It's interesting that whenever Genesis 16 and 21 mention Hagar, she is almost always identified as Hagar, the Egyptian woman. Early Jewish readers of that text would have immediately associated Egypt with slavery. So not only is she a slave, but she is a slave from Egypt. Such repetitive wording is why Paul rightly sees Hagar as representing slavery to the reader. In Genesis 21, It says that Hagar and her son Ishmael are required to leave Abraham and his family. Ishmael marries an Egyptian woman and lives in the wilderness of Paran. Paran is in the Sinai Peninsula and is where the Israelites later received the law before entering the promised land. But Genesis 21 says that Ishmael and his mother were sent away and lived there. Jewish readers like Paul would have understood the deeper meaning in disclosing that information. Here are slaves dwelling in the wilderness, in the place of the law. 
And unlike the later Israelites, they never enter the promised land. This is the message of Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis 16 and 21 that Paul extrapolates in Galatians 4. The story of Hagar the Egyptian in chapter 16 falls right in between Abram being counted as righteous because of faith in chapter 15 and God commanding circumcision in chapter 17. The story is there in the middle so that the readers do not get confused. Circumcision does not save. Obedience to the law does not save. It does not allow you to receive the ultimate blessing. It only results in slavery and wilderness. The covenant of curses and blessings made with Moses through the law in the wilderness is meant to show us that a better covenant is needed. A new covenant is needed. The result of you trying to earn God's favor through your own actions is perpetual slavery because you will never be good enough. There will always be more that you can do, more that you need to do. And what you attain will never ultimately satisfy you. Like being in the wilderness and never getting enough water. And so you will keep striving and striving and striving. And you will always question, am I good enough? See, I believe that there are some of you listening today who are there. You're always asking, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Can God really love me? It's easy to fall into this even without realizing it. Maybe you think that you need to improve yourself before you come back to church before you go to Bible study, or even before you pray. I once had a friend in college who joked that he'd get struck by lightning if he ever set foot inside a church, that perhaps he had to become a better person first before he could be accepted by God. This was the case with the monk Martin Luther in the late 1400s. Listen to a short excerpt from a a popular biography. It says, the medieval Catholic church's penal system led people to believe that that they could earn their way to heaven and that they therefore must try as hard as possible to do so. Most people weren't especially successful at it, but Martin Luther had entered the life of a monk precisely because he wished to be successful at it. So he prayed the monastic hours every day as every monk must do, rising extremely early and praying all through the day. And he went to confession at every opportunity. So why did he feel he was making no progress? He confessed and confessed, and yet he knew that if he was honest, there were always some bad thoughts that he had forgotten to confess. Or perhaps if he had been 
thorough in confession, he would have experienced a sinful pride over that thoroughness. And now he was obliged to confess the pride. The bottom line was that he knew he wasn't getting anywhere and it was all torturing him. He doubted that he could ever be good, no matter how hard he tried, that he could ever be worthy of God's grace, mercy, and salvation. He knew that the life of a monk was designed to free one from temptation, to keep one so busy with praying and singing and doing that there was no room for the sorts of things he might have been able to do if he had continued as a lawyer. But for Luther, the more he tried to be holy, the more he saw that he couldn't be. If we're honest with ourselves, this is us when we rely on our good works to earn God's ultimate blessing. We are slaves to our own good behavior and it produces no fruit in us. Like Sarai, apart from God's intervention, we are barren and can produce nothing. But Martin Luther later stumbled upon a truth from scripture that truly changed him. Rather than tirelessly reforming himself, this truth instead reformed the church. Verses 26 through 28. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice. Encircle rejoice. O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. This passage that Paul quotes is fascinating because it comes from Isaiah chapter 54. You can turn there if you have your Bible. When you read Isaiah 54 in context, we learn that the barren woman he's talking about is not Sarai. It's actually the remnant of Israel. All of God's true followers that they were scattered into desolate places because of their sin, but they are being reclaimed. Paul sees Sarai as symbolic of this. This is the ultimate blessing that will come through Sarai, the blessing that the children of promise will inherit. That despite our barrenness and inability to produce anything good, we will experience true fruitfulness. We will not stay in the wilderness. Listen to the end of Isaiah 54, starting at verse 10. It says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. 
I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness from me, declares the Lord. This is the ultimate blessing that was promised from the day of Abraham. This is the ultimate promised land. This is a return to Eden. This is heaven and the new earth. This is the deepest longing of every human heart. This is freedom. And Paul declares that we are the children of promise. That this inheritance is ours despite any persecution that we will face, like he says in verses 29 and 30. But how? How is this promise ours? How does he make fruitfulness out of barrenness? How does he make a city out of wilderness? Do you know what comes right before Isaiah 54 in chapter 53? What is it that makes Isaiah 54 possible? Listen to the end of Isaiah 53, starting at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is Jesus. He took the penalty that we deserve so that we can be made right with God, accepted by God and receive God's ultimate blessing through faith in him. This is the gospel message. This is Christianity. This is the new covenant of grace. Galatians 4.31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free.
Now as we come to the communion table, let this be a reminder that we can approach our Heavenly Father as beloved sons. Not because of our good works or because we've cleaned ourselves up enough, gone to enough Bible studies, but only because of Christ's broken body and poured out blood on our behalf. It doesn't matter how many good things you've done or how many bad things you've done. If you turn to him in faith, you are his. And that is a very freeing thing.